right around the temple building itself, saying to them, it is written in the Old Testament, and he cites Isaiah and Jeremiah here, uh, and my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. And he was teaching daily, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, before he's arrested on Thursday night. But the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people, most of the leaders of institutional Judaism, were trying to destroy him. Uh, they've been trying to destroy him, but this they, they've hit a breaking point. They're, he's not going to leave Jerusalem alive. He's there for the Passover at the end of the week. They've decided he's not going to not going to leave the area around Jerusalem. We're going to have him killed some way. We're going to have to find the exact moment to do it. But they could not find anything that they might do right then on that Monday morning. For all the people were hanging on every word he said. Crowds are still interested, not persuaded that he's who he claims to be necessarily, but they're interested in what he has to say and how he says it. Uh, we come to letter U in the life of Christ A through Z. Jesus cleanses the temple again. Understandable upset. And we're going to learn some lessons from the fact that Jesus didn't cleanse the temple once. He cleansed it at least twice that we know about. And there are reasons. And we'll think about those this morning. But first, let's uh, pray that we'll be teachable to God's word. This is a spiritual exercise. This is an act of worship just as much as singing Christmas carols, uh, sitting under, receiving, and then taking the word of God home with you. So let's pray for our teachability and also for those who protect our right under the uh, First Amendment of the Constitution. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That's the first part of the First Amendment to the Constitution. And it's about what the federal government shall not do to Christians. It's not about what Christians should do in the public square. But uh, these guys, among others, defend that. Peace officers like that, who unfortunately these guys were killed a couple of years ago, and then our firefighters. So let's pray in that direction. Uh, Clay, pray for us. Okay. Thank you, Clay. Future Hillsdale student. If you decide to go there, I know you have other options, but they want you. And I think that's awesome. I don't know if you're like me, but if you're like me, now that we're in the Christmas season, one of the things I think about a lot every Christmas would be kangaroos. For some reason, I've always associated kangaroos with Christmas. And um, so with that in mind, to warm up our capacity for abstract thinking, five fun facts all TBFers need to know about kangaroos. With a big assist from Anthony Foreman. Uh, what do you call a baby kangaroo who is very lazy? A pouch potato. <laughs> what do you get when you cross a kangaroo with a calendar? Leap year. <laughs> a very sick kangaroo had grease applied to his back. And after that, he went downhill fast. <laughs> Thank you. What do you get when you cross a sheep with a kangaroo? A sweater with really big pockets? And the last one, hold your applause, please. Why do mother kangaroos hate it when it rains? Because the kids have to play inside all day. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Anthony. Life of Christ A through Z. One Savior, four Gospels, 26 major events, in alphabetical order. Talking about real people, real places, real events. And we're looking at understandable upset here in Luke 19. Now, it's been over a month since we walked through the uh, map of the life of Christ A through Z as we've reviewed it. So let's do that again. And boy, this, uh, this past semester,
But this is final exam week coming up at Cameron, and so pray for Angel, pray for Dustin, uh, pray for the college students. But uh, this this semester's gone by so quickly, and then we're going to do Christmas, New Year's, and start another semester. And at the end of the spring semester, Lord willing, a bunch of us are going to go to Israel, and we'll be in places like Jerusalem and Bethany and Bethlehem, and we'll drive past and hopefully stop at Jericho this time, and Nazareth and Cana and Mount Carmel. The mountain I couldn't remember the other night. Uh, Caesarea. We'll be all these places. They're real places. But let's walk through the life of Christ A through Z. Letter A has two parts. A, one, refers to uh, angels announcing the supernormal pregnancy of John the Baptist. His parents were too old to have children. But an angel announced to Zacharias, the dad of John the Baptist, they were going to have a child. He was going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. That's A1. A2 is the angelic announcement first to Mary and three months later to Joseph that, in fact, she was going to conceive a baby as a virgin. It was going to be a supernatural conception. And nine months later, the virgin birth of the God-man Savior. So A stands for angelic announce or angels announce. B is birth in Bethlehem. Now, Tim, that's important because Micah, the Old Testament prophet, in 700 B.C. predicted the Messiah would be born in the city of David, the city where King David was born in about 1000 B.C. In 700 B.C., Micah makes his prophecy. 700 years later, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a Hebrew word that means house of bread, and he's the bread of life. So B stands for birth in Bethlehem. C is carpentry career. Jesus was a technon, which means a skilled worker in wood or in stone, and he worked with his hands from his apprentice ship starting at age 12 until about 30, Luke says, when he began his ministry. So it's interesting. He did um, physical uh, work, blue-collar work for 18 years, and his ministry was only three years long. Uh, God does things much differently than we would do them. D and E really begin the ministry of Jesus. D is dove descends at the Duncan. Jesus identifies with the ministry of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist identifies Jesus as the one he's been saying is on the ground. He's the Christ at the baptism. Dove descends at the Duncan. We've got the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove and the voice of God the Father saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. E, immediately after the baptism, we have E, enemy entices. Jesus, having been declared righteous at the baptism, demonstrates his righteousness going one-on-one with Lucifer uh, with after 40 days of fasting in uh, just the opposite of the Garden of Eden, where the tempter succeeded with the first Adam, the tempter failed spectacularly with the last Adam, enemy entices. F, after the temptation, Jesus goes back to where John the Baptist was baptizing, just beyond the Jordan, uh, just on the east side of the Jordan River, and he tracks his first five followers. So F stands for first followers, and those followers are Japan, John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. And they come to faith. They believe Jesus is the Christ. Early on there, right? G stands for great guest. All those guys are from the northern part of Israel, as Jesus was too, uh, Galilee. And they all end up attending a wedding feast, a wedding um, reception, we would call it. And when they run out of refreshments, Jesus turns water into wine. That's his first miracle. Great guests at the wedding in Canaan. H, this is the grand opening, Lori. This is the official grand opening of the ministry of Jesus as he goes to Jerusalem at the beginning of his ministry. And what does H stand for? And use the visual aid if you need it. Harsh house cleaning. When Jesus arrives after 2,000 years of concerted prophecies of the Jewish people, 
They're not ready. The system is totally corrupt, and he rejects it as it stands. Now, we're going to look at the flip side of that today. Understandable upset three years later, after he's been on the ground in and out of Jerusalem for three years, all over the country, system's still corrupt. Large bureaucracies end up uh, justifying their own existence, being very corrupt and uh, very uh, inefficient, put not by faith in large bureaucracies, religious or political. That's a warning from somebody who knows. At least history bears that out. While he's in Jerusalem for the first Passover his ministry, he has this incredible interview with the leading uh, teacher of Judaism, Nicodemus, and he tells this old old man who thinks he's going to earn his way to heaven by being a really, really good religious Jew, that that's not good enough. He needs to receive salvation as a gift through faith in Jesus Christ. Going due north, and Tim, no self-respecting Jew would have would have gone from the southern area where the Jews lived, Judea, to the northern area where the Jews lived at the time, Galilee. They wouldn't have gone through the middle area here because people there were part Jewish, part Gentile. They didn't worship exactly the way the Jews did. And the Jewish people thought they had spiritual cooties. And they hated them based on their ethnicity and their religion. But Jesus goes right through Samaria on purpose because he knows none of that stuff really matters. The gospel transcends color, culture, uh, language, ethnicity, all that good stuff. And he has jive talking, or he hears jive talking at Jacob's well, where the woman at the well uh, tries to uh, excuse the fact she's been a big-time immoral sinner for a long time. But the bottom line is, Jesus basically tells her the same thing he told Nicodemus in Jerusalem. Nicodemus thought he could earn his way into heaven. Jesus says, no, you got to be born again by receiving this as a gift. Uh, she thinks that she's too bad to be saved. And he says, you know, if you knew who was talking to you and the gift he could give you, you'd ask me and I'd give you living water. I'd give you eternal life. So you see that nobody's so good they don't need salvation through faith in Christ. Nobody's so bad they can't have it. Jive at Jacob's well. What happens after J? What's the next letter? I know you guys have incredible memories. You can you can memorize as many as 26 things in order. You know how I know that? You all know how to say the alphabet. That's 26 separate things. In order, you know that every time. Um, we don't use our brains. It's like a muscle. You stop using it, it gets weaker. Uh, K, kin kick out. The ministry's under full swing. He goes back to his hometown. Jesus does go to the synagogue. They hand him the scroll to read, to honor him. He reads 60, Isaiah 61. Uh, the uh, Spirit of God is upon me uh, to preach the gospel to the poor. And then he sets aside the scroll and says, here's what that means. Today that scripture has been fulfilled in me, in your hearing. I'm the one that Isaiah 61 is talking about. I'm the Messiah. And what happened? Everybody's so happy. Hometown boy makes good. No, they are very offended. He claimed to be the Messiah. They reject it, and they try to kill him. And that's what happened there. Kin kick out. So Jesus doesn't base his ministry in Nazareth, where he was a tecton for 18 years. But location lateraled. His ministry is based in a fishing village on the Sea of Galilee called Capernaum, village of Nam, right? This is why he keeps bumping into fishermen so much. M and N talk about the great Galilean ministry, 18 months of marvelous messages like the Sermon on the Mount and nature-neutralized miracles to validate his claims to be the Savior. Then we have O and P. Uh, there's so much buzz about who Jesus is. He's generated so much publicity, as it were. He's gotten the message out to the nation 
The nation is looking to the religious leaders in Jerusalem to, to take a position on who he is. He's coming to be the Christ. What do our leaders say? Well, the leaders say he was a satanically possessed false prophet. They can't deny the miracles he's doing because he's doing them. They've got to impugn the source. And so he begins teaching in parables so that the uh, enemies won't get any more information to indict him. But people who really want it can get it. But you got to want it. This is a heart issue. It's not just a head issue. Now, that's um, a diagram of the trajectory of the ministry of Christ. And right there, OP, where the opposition offered the official party line of institutional Judaism is that Jesus isn't the Christ. If anything, he's the Antichrist. He's not filled by the Spirit of God. He's filled by the Spirit of uh, Lucifer. That's the Pike's Peak of the life of Christ. At that point, he starts shifting gears. No longer, let's get the word out as widely as possible. Let's prepare the disciples to carry on after what's obviously going to happen because they're going to have him killed. And uh, you see that whole tenor of the ministry changing at that point. Now, we got way too many uh, letters on that map, so let's clear the map and move on. We're going to go to Caesarea Philippi. Q and R kind of go together. Q is quizzical questions. Jesus takes the guys outside of Jewish territory north, about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. We'll be, oh, you're going to be in Caesarea Philippi next May. It's a real place. And actually, it was a pagan worship center. This is a, a place uh, most Baptist preachers wouldn't even go today, you know, but I guess they do on the tours. But, yeah, he goes and gets away from the routine of ministry, and he says, who do people say that I am now that the leaders are saying I'm satanically possessed? And they're still saying a lot of good things, but nobody's saying he's the Christ. That's question one. Then he says, who do you say that I am? What are you going to, what are you willing to confess now that you know what the leadership is saying about me and what they're going to do to me? And Peter, speaking for 11 of the 12, Judas was never a believer, says, you are the Christ. Christ isn't his last name, Andrew. It's one of his most important titles. The one anointed by God, promised in the Old Testament to be the lamb and ultimately the lion. And he's the epicenter of the program of God. And he's your personal savior, whether you know it or not. Uh, after Q, where Peter hits the Grand Slam home run, Jesus reveals, reality reveals, he unveils his glory on top of a high mountain. Caesarea Philippi happens to be uh, right at the foot uh, of the largest mountain in the area called Mount Hermon, 9,200 feet high. And that's almost certainly where the transfiguration event happens, where again, Jesus reveals his glory. Um, we see uh, the voice of God the Father saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. He's the epicenter. He's the savior. He's the whole point. Uh, letter S, stoning stopped in John, um, uh, that was last week, wasn't it? Yeah, last week. Uh, in John 10, Jesus is in Jerusalem in December before the crucifixion in April, so this would be December 32 A.D., and he says, I and the Father are one, and the Jewish leaders take up stones to stone him, and he says, what are you trying to stone me for? Because you, being a man, claim to be God. He's claiming to be the God-man Savior. Very clear, very obvious, uh, and they reject that. Last week, we were at the traumatized tomb of Lazarus, where Jesus raises up, supernaturally resuscitates a guy who's been dead for four days. If you're interested in life after death, Jesus Christ is the person to focus on. Okay. If you're interested in becoming a great nurse, you go to nursing school. If you're interested in becoming what, a lawyer, you go to law school. If you're interesting, interested in blessed life after you die, and everybody qualifies because we're all going to die, there's only one person to look to, Stan. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody else has prophesied his death, paid for your sins, and then rose again from the dead. 
That's it. He has power over life and death. Now today, we come to letter U, which is understandable upset. At the very end of his ministry, Monday before the crucifixion on Friday, Jesus finds institutional worship just as corrupt as it was three years before. So Jesus totally failed. No, it's an epic fail on the part of institutional Judaism, of the bureaucracy. That's what's failed. He's given them every chance, more than every chance, but they failed, right? So on this chart, notice, we've come way down the back slope of this because U, V, W, X, Y all happen within a week of each other, and then Z's the zap from Zion is the ascension. That's 40 days after the resurrection. So we're going to be looking at a truncated series of events this last week. And we're going to break it down this way. We've got four verses, but we're going to break it down this way. We're going to talk about what happened on the scene in Luke 19.45-48. And then what needs to happen beyond the scene, right? So we're going to see Jesus cleanses the temple again. And one key lesson that us husbands have to remember, and every wife here could tell you this for sure. Some things must happen more than once for your husband to learn the lesson. Okay? Just, aren't you glad you came to church, Angel? Now, if some things must happen more than once for us to learn the lesson, that reminds me of a famous saying, if at first you don't succeed, no, 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 that's not the way it goes. If at first you don't succeed, skydiving is not for you. Uh, but there are a lot of things it takes more than one time to learn. And the fact that Jesus cleansed the temple twice isn't a mistake in the Gospels. It's a statement of human psychology and uh, depravity, right? Okay, let's look at first the uh, what I'm calling the dramatic upset. Look at verse 45 and verse 46. Jesus entered the temple on Monday before crucifixion Friday. Three days, or three years after the first time he cleansed the temple at the first Passover his ministry, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling. What are they selling? Refreshments, souvenirs? No, they're selling sacrificial animals. The idea was you had to have a sacrificial lamb for the Passover. This is the Passover celebration. You could bring them from home, but you had to pay a priest to uh, certify, inspect them, and say that they qualified. And it was too much of a hassle for most people who were traveling long distance to bring their own animals. So they would buy an animal in place. And just in the last few years prior to this, the priest decided, well, I put this outside the temple precincts. Now, when you say temple, you tend to think of the building. This isn't happening in the building. That's the building. We're talking about the courtyard here called the Court of the Gentiles. Rather than people uh, milling around, uh, praying, uh, bringing their sacrifices to the front of the building. We've got long tables. We've got animals that the priests or the religious folks have bought at a cheap price because they're not very good animals, not very good sheep. They're probably damaged in some way or malformed or something. And by definition, you're supposed to bring the best. First fruit's not left over. But the priests were operating kind of a, uh, a Ponzi scheme here. They were buying inferior animals for a low price, bringing them into the temple and approving them for Passover service, Passover sacrifice, and then you had to pay premium price inside the temple. They may be paid five shekels for this thing. You're buying it for 50, making a lot of money on that. Plus, you couldn't use your own money. Uh, the money they typically used, the Roman money, was all had cooties on it, like the Samaritans. So if you had a Samaritan with Roman money, you had people with double cooties. But now the Jews are coming in with this cootified money, and the priests came up with a system where they had their own temple coinage, 
And you had to exchange your real coins for their coins, and they're making money on that. So they're making money on the actual purchase. They're making money on the money exchange. And uh, they're totally obliterating the purpose. Because what's the temple really? What are the temple sacrifices? What's the Passover sacrifice ultimately talking about? The Lamb of God's one-time sacrifice. But they're not focusing on that. They're focusing on getting rich and famous. Uh, and it's, it's just a scheme. It's a, it's a, it's a, a corruption to the nth degree. So Jesus saw that, same thing as three years before, began to drive those out who were selling, put them out of business for the afternoon, saying to them, as Isaiah 56 says, it's written in the Old Testament, my house shall be a house of prayer and a place for people to make illegal profits. And as Jeremiah 7.11 says, but you've made it a robber's den. So it's, the Old Testament prescribes very specific details about sacrifices, but God is quoted multiple times by the prophet saying, I'm not interested in sacrifices per se. I'm interested in your heart. You could be baptized every Sunday and have nothing to do with your sanctification if you weren't a believer and weren't doing it for the right reasons. You can show up for church every time the doors are open. And going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going into a garage makes you a car. But here lately, you know, this I used to say going into a garage doesn't necessarily make you a, a car, and going to a kitchen doesn't necessarily make you a cook. But recently, see you, Duncan. I said uh, just like going into a garage doesn't make you a cook, and they didn't get that joke at all. But you know, I knew what I meant, and that's that's the main thing, right? So the temple is not the building; it's the the whole area, this whole complex. Is, is called the temple, meaning the temple complex. Now we're going to see the western wall next May, which is a section right there, okay? It's an artifact from the first temple. We're also going to be able to walk on these steps here, which have been partially renovated, and that was the main way in. That's south, that's west, that's north, that's east. Mount of Olives is right out there, okay? So we've seen this before at the beginning. We're seeing it again at the end. The point is the bureaucracy hasn't changed not one little wit, and that's unfortunate. So let's look at, why are they offering sacrifices at a temple? We don't do that, do we? Uh, according to our textbook we use at Cameron for World Religions, there are like 36,000 denominations, and we differ on a lot of different things. But one thing we all agree on is we don't need to do animal sacrifices at all. How come? Because we realize animal sacrifices mandated for Old Testament Israel was pointing and anticipating the sacrifice of Christ, and we're living on the other side of that. The Old Testament is all about the premise that all human beings sin and we all die, but God's going to send a Savior who will pay for the sin, and through faith in him we can have eternal life. And Abraham in, in, in uh, Genesis 15, 6 is, is said uh, to have believed God's promises about saying a Savior, and that was reckoned for him as righteousness. How were people saved in the Old Testament before Jesus came? Faith in the promised Savior. How are people like David Bearden saved in the New Testament era? Faith in the provided Savior. You might say in the Old Testament they were saved on credit, anticipating the payment. We've got the blessing of being between the first and second advent, which is a huge blessing. We can look back on the provided Savior and look forward to his return. The New Testament says Jesus is the one who was promised, and he's alive having paid for our sins. He's been resurrected and he's the issue and issuer, and he's going to come back and end human history on God's terms. And listen, the Jewish leaders who are rejecting Jesus and running this fraudulent money-making enterprise, they know all these verses. They know that they could come up with a chart uh, for the Old Testament, kind of like that. And for sure, 
they would have known all these passages in the Old Testament that talked about who the Savior would be. And it gets very, very specific when you line up the verses. And these guys knew all these verses in Hebrew, but they were dedicated to the proposition that they could earn salvation their way. Salvation is not a DIY project. What is DIY? Do it yourself. For by grace, what does grace mean? Unmerited favor or blessing. For by grace are you saved through faith. Face the empty hand that receives the merits of Christ. For by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works. There's nothing for you to brag about. Any salvation that allows you to brag about it isn't a salvation that the Bible knows anything about. It's all about bragging or glorifying who Jesus Christ is. Okay? So that's the dramatic upset. That's the cleansing of the temple on Monday before the crucifixion on Friday. Now look at the first part of verse 47. We go from this crisis, the system is in crisis, Jesus rejects it, dramatic upset, to now his consistency. Um, if I knew I was going to be crucified in four days, I'm not sure what I'd be doing, but I don't think I would be calmly teaching and kindly teaching the multitudes that I know most of whom are going to flip on me at the last minute. They're very fickle. He was teaching daily in the temple. Again, not in the building, but in the precincts. Now, so you see consistency here, Julie. I mean, he's, this is why he's here. And I'm pretty sure I know what he's teaching them. I'm pretty sure, Tim, he's teaching them the same basic principles he taught all along, found in the Sermon on the Mount, and also this kind of stuff he would have taught Nicodemus way back at the first Passover Jesus was in Jerusalem, because these people are all religious Jews convinced they might be able to earn their own salvation. Now, you, you want to know this, but the Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That will never change. So let's just see a couple things in the Sermon on the Mount. Look at the Matthew 5, verse 20. This is kind of the theme, theological purpose statement of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Those chapters are where you find the Sermon on the Mount. But Matthew 5, verse 20 is the theological purpose statement. Jesus says, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the best religious human righteousness people can crank out, that of the scribes and the Pharisees who were very picky, pickier than Old Testament Scripture and tried to do the best they could to obey that as best as humanly possible. Unless your righteousness is better than theirs, you cannot enter the kingdom. That tells you nobody's so good they can earn this because nobody is any more religiously scrupulous than the scribes and the Pharisees. So this is not do this stuff in this sermon, you can earn your way into heaven. This is Rather, this is what a life redeemed by me can look like, but you're not going to save yourself based on your works. You need salvation from me. And he says stuff like, uh, look at verse 27. You've heard, uh, when I look at, uh, I want the murder one first. That's uh, adultery. Yeah, look at uh, verse 22, or verse 21. You've heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. Whoever commits murder is going to be subject to capital punishment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry who's implacable, who people who hate and hold grudges live a miserable life. I found out as an older guy, um, there's, a, there's a lot of joy in being as generous of spirit as you can be. Now, sometimes people cross lines and you have to deal with stuff. But there's a lot of joy in just not being so impressed with your own preferences that you insist everybody bow down to your preferences. Uh, he's saying if you hate people, if you're implacable, that's the same thing. That's the same thing as murder, at least from a spiritual point of view. It says the same thing about adultery. Look at verse 27. You've heard you shall not commit adultery. None of these scribes or Pharisees have committed physical adultery. But I tell you that everyone who looks at a woman not his wife 
with those kind of ideas, you know, appropriation in his heart. That's the same thing. He's putting a bar up there nobody can keep perfectly, but he's saying, you want to earn salvation by your own good works? Try this. He's driving them to embrace salvation by grace and telling disciples what this thing will look like. Now, go to John 3. I think during this teaching time of Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, the last week of the life of Christ, he would have pounded away a lot of those principles that he taught in the Sermon on the Mount. But I think ultimately his bottom line would have been very much what he told Nicodemus, the leading teacher of Judaism at the time, and go back to John 3, right after the first cleansing of the temple. And let's just start at verse 14. Jesus says to Nicodemus, and he knows all the Old Testament background here, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness in Numbers 21, a bronze serpent, they'd been bitten by snakes, and, and Moses said, help us, and God said, put a serpent on a pole, and everybody who looks at the pole in faith will be healed of the, of the snake bites. As Moses lifted up the serpent on the pole in the wilderness with the Exodus generation were getting out of Egypt, headed toward the promised land, even so the Son of Man, Jesus talking about himself, is going to be lifted up on a cross so that whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. For, here's the theology of it, God the Father, the architect of the plan of salvation, loved the world so much he gave his Son, who's the active agent in the plan of salvation, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, go to the lake of fire, but will have everlasting life as a present abiding possession when they believe. God didn't send the world, or the Son into the world to judge the world. The world already stood condemned, but that the world might be saved through faith in him. The one who believes in Jesus is not judged, will never be judged. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But the one, he or she, uh, in Africa or uh, Atlanta, doesn't matter, has been judged already because he has not believed in the name, the person, and the work of the only begotten Son of God. So go back to Luke 19. We're told that Jesus, seemingly very calmly, is teaching Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, knowing full well Thursday night is going to be arrested, thrown into a holding tank in the house of Caiaphas. We'll see that in May, and then brutalized the next day. But he's teaching these things because he just keeps shining the light. And rather than holding up and trying to come up with a plan, he just keeps doing what uh, God called him to do. And so I think it's very important to notice that because you can almost skip that little part of that verse. So we go from crisis, the dramatic upset, the system's just as corrupt now as it was three years ago, daily ministry, teaching the same principles we've been teaching all along, and now we come to verse 47b through 48. The dilemma of Christ's enemies in your in your paperwork there, I put opponents, but let's change opponents to enemies. Opponents isn't a strong enough term. The dilemma of Christ's enemies. They want him gone. They're not going to leave him, let him leave Jerusalem again without killing him. It's just a matter of when. They got motive. They got means. They're just looking for the opportunity. It's going to happen, but it's not going to happen on Monday because there's too, still too many people hanging around. He's still too popular, at least superficially. But the chief priests and the scribes are not listening to what he's teaching. They don't care. They've totally rejected him. They're beyond the point of no return. And the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him, and they couldn't find anything that they might do right then. It, the dirty deed's going to happen Thursday night away from the crowds in Gethsemane, right? For all the people were hanging on to every word he said. Wow. They're going to lynch the Lord, but it's not going to be today. But they're not, they're not going to go away. Uh, yeah, let me emphasize that um, in Nicodemus' 
in that interview uh, with Nicodemus, Jesus was talking to the core spiritual need of 99% of Jews in that day. They'd been taught they could climb the Old Testament law to God if they obeyed the law well enough. And Jesus says, that won't work and you can't do it anyway. <laughs> you know, we're guilty with an inability to save ourselves. So what does Jesus teach to those who think uh, they can be good enough to go to heaven? He says, nobody's so good they don't need salvation through faith in him. Right? So we looked at what happened on the scene, the second cleansing of the temple. Now let's talk about what needs to happen behind or beyond the scenes, I should say. And here's just an issue you need to know about, talking about Bible contradictions. The synoptic gospels, that means Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. That'll never change. So if we give you a te- if we give you a test some Sunday, and we're tempted to do that, except I'm afraid the elders might not pass, and then we'd have a problem, but uh, no. Uh, we'll give them special study aids. Uh, no, they'd do fine, I'm sure, but uh, the synoptic gospels have the same basic synopsis, okay? Baptism, temptation, great Galilean ministry, last trip to Jerusalem, Passion Week, crucifixion, resurrection. That's the outline that Matthew uses and Mark uses and Luke uses. Okay, so they have the same synopsis generally. We get different details, and that's important. But the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of them say Jesus cleansed the temple at the end of his ministry. We just read Luke's account. Okay, the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's the fourth gospel. It takes a whole different slant on the ministry of Christ. It looks at Christ uh, from Passover to Passover, emphasizes the four Passovers and the five, four Passovers and the three years of ministry. Uh, John says that Jesus uh, cleansed the temple, letter H in our system, at the very beginning of his ministry. Let's go back and look at that. Look at uh, John chapter two real quick. This is really pretty cool when you correlate this together. Uh, John 2, 13, the Passover of the Jews was near. This is the first of four Passovers emphasized by John. It gives you three years. Jesus went to Jerusalem and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, sacrificial animals and money changers and doing that whole bit we described earlier, making money off of very sincere people trying to do the right thing. And he kind of drove them out of the temple and put them out of uh, business for that day, just making a statement, I'm the Messiah, I don't accept this. This is totally corrupt, this is totally wrong. I uh, says, stop making my father's house a place of business. I don't think that means that we can't have little kids selling stuff for the band uh, in and around the church. I prefer if they don't do it right in here, right before service. That's just me. Do it in the hallway or something like that. But that's not the same thing. We're not talking about the same thing. The 1036, right on time. Talking about consistency. Now watch this. Verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written in the Psalms that the Messiah would be full of zeal for the house of God and would consume him. The Jewish leaders then said to him, what sign do you show us that you do this? You'd have to be the Christ to tell us how to do business in our temple. Because we are the human authorities over the temple. And Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And the Jewish leader said, it took us 46 years to renovate this thing to where it is now. Talking about the physical building. And you're going to raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of what? Of his body. He's already thinking about the resurrection. That's the ultimate proof Jesus is who he claimed to be, right? His resurrection. So when he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered he said that at the very beginning, at the first Passover, and they were confirmed in their faith about what Jesus did. So go back to Luke. Go back to Luke 19. Here's the thing. The, the uh, issue that needs to be addressed uh, there's our basic trajectory, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke put 
the uh, cleansing of the temple, we're calling this understandable upset, at the very end, right, David? On Monday before the crucifixion. They say it happened at the end. Gospel of John says it happens at the first Passover. So who's right? I think they're both right. I think H tells you the important truth that after the Messiah shows up, after thousands of years of prophecy, and Josephus, a Jewish historian, and other historical, non-biblical data indicates that generation was very much looking for the Messiah. They were very messianically oriented. They were expecting the Messiah to come and, among other things, deliver them from the Roman occupation. Uh, the fact that when Jesus shows up at the beginning of his ministry, the visible system of Judaism is totally corrupt. What does uh, you tell us? After three years of him ministering, the system's still corrupt. The system has not been influenced by Jesus at all because it rejected Jesus. It's not because of anything he did wrong. So rather than saying, well, uh, I've always said that evangelical scholars are better scholars than, than liberal critical scholars because they see something like this. Well, John says it happened at the beginning. Matthew, Mark, and Luke says at the end. So one of them's wrong and just stop thinking. It's only the evangelicals that look at all the data and try to correlate it. And typically it correlates quite nicely. And let me show you some examples of this. Um, the guy that wrote 136 Bible Contradictions said, uh, here's a contradiction in the Bible, but it's a problem in correlating, not a problem in corruption. In Matthew 1, in fact, let's just turn there real quick. Joseph, Jesus' uh, legal father, is informed after the fact by an angel about the pregnancy. Look at uh, Matthew 1.18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother, Mary, had been engaged to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant. By the Holy Spirit is the virgin conception. And Joseph, after finding out his fiancée is pregnant, and he knows he had not touched her, uh, was, you know, they were so gullible back in the Bible. They just assumed anything strange happened, Connie, was a miracle, right? Now, this guy's just assuming the obvious, right? In 99.99999% of the cases. But Joseph, being her husband, legally, not, they haven't consummated it, but his betrothed, they actually use that title for someone in, the engagement back then was more of a legal thing than it is in our culture. Being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her or have her stoned, was going to just put her away secretly and just had his heart broken. But when he's thinking about coming up with a plan to, as subtly as possible, deal with this, but he's shattered, his heart's shattered. And the angel of the Lord came to him and said, don't worry about it. This is of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you're going to call him Jesus, not Joseph. It's all good. It's exactly what we said. So this is obviously happening after the pregnancy, right? Go to Luke. Chapter 1, it's a matter of correlation. When you see parallel or similar things in two different gospel accounts, you always want to fit them together properly. And usually there's a pretty obvious harmonization in most cases. Sometimes you've got to think a little harder. But look at Luke one twenty six. In the sixth month of John the Baptist's pregnancy, and his parents were too old to have children. Talked about that. Gabriel, one of the major angels, was sent from God to a city in Galilee, a little city called Nazareth, where Joseph and Mary lived, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph. Uh, this is all happening, obviously, before uh, the Matthew 1 passage we just read. Uh, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary, and coming into uh, her house, he says, Greetings, favored one, but she was perplexed at this because you got a spiritual linebacker coming in saying, You're blessed. What, what you got to tell me to do here? What's he going to tell me to do? So the angel said, don't be afraid. You found favor with God. For behold, you're going to conceive supernaturally in your womb and you'll bear a son. You're going to name him Jesus. And he's going to be great. And he's going to be the one the Old Testament's all about. And she says, how can this be? I'm a virgin. How can I get pregnant? 
The angel says it's going to be a supernatural virgin conception. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. For this reason, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. Yeah, and in this pamphlet, the 136 Bible Contradictions, it actually says that in Matthew, we're told that Joseph was informed after the pregnancy by an angel, but in Luke, it says Mary was informed before the pregnancy by an angel. So one of them is obviously wrong, right? You guys are smart enough to know that's not a problem. Those are two things that are separate on a timeline. And I actually think when I read the way that that contradiction was worded in that pamphlet, I think they were assuming since Matthew, watch this, Tim, since Matthew is the first of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke is the third one, I think they were thinking anything in Matthew 1 must happen before Luke 1 because Matthew comes before Luke. Now, you know better than that, right? They're independent stories. And when you actually correlate them, what's happening to, to Mary in Luke 1 happens uh, several months uh, before because Mary gets the word, then she goes to visit John the Baptist's mother for several months. When she comes back, she's visibly pregnant, and we got the problem that uh, Matthew describes as happening. Here's a, we're talking about correlation, correlation, correlation of Jesus cleansing the temple early in the ministry as opposed to late. They both happened. They both fit together and tell us separate uh, principles. How about this one? This is really a big one, and I wish I had more time, but we're going to give you the shorthand version. In Romans 4, Paul says that Abraham was justified by faith. If Abraham was justified by works, he'd have something to boast about before God. But to the one who does not work, but who believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. So Romans 4 is clearly saying Abraham was justified before God by faith, not by works. But James 2 says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac on the altar? And that is seen by many people as an inherently a contradiction or what it really means, evangelicals will say, well, saving faith really is a commitment to work. It's not just an empty hand that receives because they're talking about the same thing. No, they're not. Here's how you correlate that. you got one man, Abraham, two different events at two different times in his life. In Romans 4, Paul is citing Abraham in Genesis 15. Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He's talking about justification before God, which is a legal standing that happens at the moment of saving faith. In James 2, we're talking about Abraham, not in Genesis 15, but when Abraham did something. What did the passage in James say? When he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. And by the way, you have to have a big faith to offer up your son on an altar. And I have often said, I haven't, I've had, I'm not at that point yet. But you know what? I've changed. Because uh, I have grandchildren now. Actually, if God told me to offer up Jamie or Jonathan on the altar, I could probably do that. But not Peter, not Cooper... Not Mason, not Vivian, not Lincoln, not Violet or Eloise. I got all seven right. <laughs> My faith's not big enough for that. Very few people could do what Abraham did. This wasn't um, an average believer. This is a guy who's off the chart, seriously, at that point. And it, by the way, Hebrews tells us Abraham was about to do that because he was convinced God wanted him to, knowing God would have to resurrect Isaac because he knows it's him, Isaac, and that progeny is going to bring the Savior. He believed in the promises. So he knows that's going to happen. And if God wants me to run through a wall or even to offer up my son, I'll do that. Now, that's not emphasizing or validating child sacrifice. It's kind of the ultimate example of mature faith. You realize that Genesis 22 happens like 25 years later 
This guy, this guy was not capable of doing that back in Genesis 15. But that's when he got saved. That's when he got justified before God. Uh, James is not talking about justification by faith before God, but justifying, demonstrating, practically showing faith in ways people of all over the world go, wow, I can't believe you did that. was willing to do that, right? So you put that on a timeline, and you've got that. And nobody seems to do that. They say, well, Romans 4 and, and, and James 2 contradict. No, they don't. That's a point act. That's the end of a process, and most people never get that strong in their faith, but he got there. And if God got him there, I suppose he can get us there too. It's probably our fault if we're not making progress in that direction, right? So that's important. Uh, here's another one, and I'll end with this one as far as example of correlation, then we'll close. Uh, the Matthew 8 passage and the Mark 1 passage are talking about the same event in the ministry of Jesus. And watch this. Matthew 8.16 says, On that occasion, Jesus healed all, Jeff, see that A-L-L, all who were ill, in that day, in that village. But Mark says he healed many. And that's been held out. Well, you try to correlate those, they don't correlate. Because all means 100%, right? Of the of the sick people that he interacted with, he healed all of them, 100%. But doesn't many mean, if you say many people voted for Donald Trump, does that mean everybody voted for Donald Trump? No, it means uh, a lot of people, right? Now, some people think that many must mean a lot, but not all. But in fact, I can say uh, I have not written many journal articles that have been published. I've only written three. Okay, wrote one on the uh, parable of the sower, one on uh, chiasm in biblical literature, and one on Second Timothy two eleven through thirteen. And if you some late night you can't sleep, just Google Brad McCoy journal articles. Get one of those three things. You'll be asleep in five minutes. I promise you. <laughs> I cannot say I've written many journal articles, but I've written all of the three I did write, right? So what does that mean? Matthew's saying Jesus had no failures. Now, many, sometimes well-meaning, sometimes charlatan, faith healers today don't have a 100% success rate. None of them do, okay? Because there are other things going on there in many cases. But Jesus never had a fail. He healed 100% of those who came to him in that village that day for physical healing. And it wasn't just two or three people. It was a good many people. It was probably 20 or 30 or 40. Once you start healing people, you're going to have people coming up with ingrown toenails and everything else. You know, as a skin rash here. Boom, you're fine. You know, not just the biggies. So that's what that is. Jesus cleanses the temple again. What are we going to do with this? Oh, my goodness. Well, sometimes it takes uh, more than once to learn a lesson. And Jesus is kind of punctuating his ministry by saying the system was corrupt when I got here system's corrupt now don't trust the system don't trust yourself to obey anybody's system to earn your way you need to look to me for salvation I'm the uncorruptible incorruptible person uh, and we are going to close but let me suggest something uh, the Bible is not a riddle it's revelation there are some things that are hard to understand but the main things are plain things they get repeated a lot and I typically kind of dumb down Bible study and say, it's interpretation, what does the thing mean in context, application, what does the meaning mean to me and my conduct? But it's a little bit more than that. And today we correlated the cleansings of the temple. Did Jesus, which one? Did Jesus cleanse the temple at the beginning of his ministry or the end of his ministry? Both. And there are good reasons to know that because it tells us those things we've emphasized. But watch this. 
Really, there are four bases in baseball. You realize if you hit a, a ball, if you're in the batter's box, and if you step out of the batter's box and hit a home run, uh, and the, if the catcher catches that as the umpire, you're out. There actually have been people that have snuck out of the batter's box, hit a ball, ran around the bases, and the umpire calls them out because they were out of the batter's box when they hit the ball. By uh, analogous to that, let's say you, you, you hit a walk-off grand slam home run and win a baseball game. If the crowd comes onto the field, baseball diamond, and you don't touch home plate, it doesn't count. You gotta to touch all four bases. You gotta to touch them. You don't just hit and walk off. You gotta to touch the bases. Good Bible study observes the text. And like, on Wednesday nights, we're looking at capital L, capital O, capital O, R, capital D, remember, as opposed to capital L, O, R, D, lowercase and stuff like that. What's there? Uh, what does that mean? How do we correlate that meaning with other parallel passages and then how do we apply it? So today we've been emphasizing correlation and realize when I say it's really two steps, I'm really kind of overlapping the first two with the third and fourth. But realize when you see something that looks like it's kind of sketchy or doesn't fit, there's almost always a way to fit it. If you're not fitting scripture together, you're misinterpreting one of the passages or the other one or maybe both of them or just not relating them properly. So God has spoken his word so we can know him, and he wants us to know what this stuff means. But sometimes you got to uh, look closely at more than uh, the one verse you're looking at. Don't just look at verses, look at sentences and paragraphs. And after you think you know what a passage means, if there are any obvious parallel passages, make sure that they fit together. If they don't, you're missing something. It's You're going to have the problem. It's going to be the scripture that have the problem. All right? Let's have a word of prayer. Father, give us the grace to be good Bible readers and teachable Bible readers, not just in here when we pray for teachability, but all the time as we are in or under the word. And uh, I pray you would be glorified in the process of us interacting, interacting with, like Zach's doing as a wrestler, wrestling with the scripture, trying to figure out what it means, how it fits with other related texts, and then most importantly, embracing that truth as binding on us with our priorities, our decisions, our uh, attitudes, and our behavior. And I pray you'd be glorified in the process and the product of that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.